Amen. You can go ahead and turn, if you have your Bible, to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning and would like one, we've got some that are at the end of each aisle here at the center. Flag somebody down and they'll, they'll be happy to pass one to you. And if, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love it if you would just take that with you. That would be our gift to you. And we look forward to a chance to, to answer any questions you might have about what you read there. Mark chapter 13 is where we're going to be today. Back in 1996, a Christian author named Tim LaHaye published a novel called Left Behind. Left Behind became the first of what would be a 16-novel series on the end of the world. Each of the 16 novels spanned hundreds of pages as LaHaye played out the details of the things that he found in the New Testament and, and in portions of the prophets in the Old Testament, how he saw those things playing out. He tapped into the fascination with the end times to create one of the best-selling phenomenons in Christian book history. Some 60-plus million copies sold, of all told, the whole series. Of course, he's not the first person to capitalize on this fascination with the end of the world. The, the, the Tim LaHaye of the 1970s and 80s was a guy named Hal Lindsey. wrote this book called The Late Great Planet Earth, which also, like the Left Behind series, was made into a very unfortunate movie in the late 1970s. Hal Lindsey was pretty bold in, in trying to identify certain things in in current events like the formation of what would become the European Union as signs that the Antichrist was already here and at work in the world. He identified the 1980s, for instance, as as a decade that he thought very likely could change history forever. That environment then inspired another book called 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Of course, 1988 came and went. This sort of curiosity is not a modern thing either. My favorite group, my favorite group that, that was sort of fixated on the end of the world was a group called the Millerites. So back in the 1830s, this guy named William Miller, up in upstate New York somewhere, he decided that based on very precise calculations he'd made through the imagery of the Old Testament prophets, that Jesus was coming back no later than March 21st of 1844. So he spent the late 30s and early 1840s gathering together followers so that they could be ready. They even identified a place and, and gathered together and waited for Jesus to come. Of course, March 21st passed and he didn't come. So they recalculated and they identified a date. I think it was in sometime in July and he didn't come. And, and they recalculated again and it was in October. On October 21st, they thought we'd, we'd miss something over here. And it was supposed to be October 21st and he didn't come. And now the group exists as the Seventh-day Adventists just uh, on some wholly different principles. It's not just a Christian fascination with the end of the world either. I mean, think about, even today, the, the role that end-of-the-world type scenarios play in politics. Think of the environmentalist movement and some of the claims there or the concerns about nuclear weapons and what could happen if, if nuclear war actually broke out. Think about pop culture and, and movies like The Day After Tomorrow or I Am Legend or I'm Told... Even the cuddly Disney Pixar movie Wally is sort of a post-apocalyptic story. It's there in literature too. Uh, Cormac McCarthy's novel, award-winning novel, The Road, sold millions of copies recently. And ultimately, it's a question that drives philosophy and always has. 
Where are we headed? And how does that affect how we should live today? That's a question that every major world religion gets at. Every philosopher, every worldview has had to address. Where are we headed? What's going to happen in the future? And how does that shape how we live now, waiting for that future to become reality? You can't understand Christianity fully unless you understand its perspective on the end of the world. We're often caught up in this sort of craze that I've just talked about in in modern culture. We're caught up with a sort of intellectual curiosity. We want to know about the timing of the end and the signs that might let us know that the end is almost here. The message of the New Testament is much less about those sorts of issues than it is about our responsibility. The New Testament is a document designed to call for a response from us, to tell us how we're supposed to live in light of what's coming. This is Jesus' subject in Mark chapter 13. It's a dialogue with the disciples. The longest section of teaching anywhere in Mark is in Mark chapter 13, and it's about the future. In this section, Jesus answers two crucial questions. They're questions we've all posed to ourselves and that all thinking people have been asking since the beginning of time. What does the future hold, and how should we live in light of that future? Would you mind standing with me as we read Mark chapter 13 together? This is the word of the Lord. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. 
And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know the time when he will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. Two questions we want to answer today from Mark chapter 13. What does the future hold, and how should we live in light of that future? Jesus takes up the questions in this longest section of teaching that that Mark records for us in his gospel. He's just concluded, Jesus has just concluded a series of confrontations in the temple with the authorities who, who were sort of enshrined in power in that place. He first went in and drove out those who were selling things. He told that parable about the fig tree that was dried up because it didn't have any fruit and condemned. He told it about the temple and warned that it would be dried up and destroyed because it was fruitless. Then we saw him engaging the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes one by one as they came to him, illustrating how fruitless they were by their challenge of Jesus. And now, at the opening of Mark chapter 13, we see Jesus leaving the temple never to return. As they're walking out of the temple, his disciples, who have been slow to catch on all through this whole story, they're still caught up with an almost tourist-like fascination with the beauty of the buildings. They've missed the fact that the temple is a fig tree without fruit that's going to be destroyed. And they say to him, look, teacher, look at these great buildings. Aren't these beautiful? Jesus merely responds, you see these great buildings? There will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They reach the Mount of Olives a mountain just outside Jerusalem that that looks down on top of the city. They take a seat on the Mount of Olives, probably in full view of the the temple that they just left. And it's there that Jesus answers a question brought to him by his disciples. The question is, if the temple is going to be destroyed, like you say, when is that going to happen? And how are we going to know it's about to happen? 
When is it going to happen? And how are we going to know that it's going to happen? The rest of Mark chapter 13 is Jesus' answer to that question. Jesus answers them saying more about concrete responsibilities that they have than concrete signs of the end. And the key to understanding his answer to the question, what does the future hold? Which is essentially what they're asking. When are these things going to happen? How are we going to know? What, what does the future hold? The key to understanding his answer is most agree to see that he is talking about the future on two separate levels. In his description of events, he's talking about the concrete destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem itself that will happen, he says, in this generation, the generation to whom he speaks. And he's also talking in other sections of Mark 13 about the final end of the world when Jesus returns in glory as the Son of Man acknowledged for who he is by everyone on earth. He's talking on two levels. The soon to happen in this generation destruction of Jerusalem and the final coming of the Son of Man. Before we get into the details, and because this is such a controversial passage that so much ink has been spilled explaining it, trying to understand its details, let me just give you a bird's eye view on why most agree that he's talking about two separate things in this, in this chapter. Lots of different reasons. One is just the question itself. The fact that the disciples are asking him not about the end of the world necessarily, but first and foremost about this temple and when it's going to be destroyed. He answers them in good faith. He doesn't redirect their question and say, you shouldn't worry about, about the destruction of the temple. What you should worry about is the end of the world and when, when everything comes to a conclusion. He answers them apparently in good faith. Another factor is the fact that, that Jesus makes recommendations to them about how they should act. He says things like, flee. When you see this happen, get out of town. It seems like those recommendations that, trouble, that there's a trouble that's coming that can be avoided wouldn't make sense if he was only talking about the final end of the world when, it's, when everything just comes to an end like that, when the Son of Man comes and is, and is regarded by all as, as Son of Man. It seems like there's no, no place for action at that point. It's, it's, it's all over. Another thing, and this is a key, is in the language that he uses. He uses different sets of pronouns to describe his subjects. So the disciples ask him about these things, these things. And his answer immediately turns to these things. He, do, he returns to that language several different times throughout the first half of the chapter and then returns to it again in his, in his analogy to the fig tree where he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. But then in a couple other sections of Mark 13, he uses the phrase, those Days, those days, in those days after the tribulation, the Son of Man will come in power. About that day, no one knows, not even the Son. It seems like Jesus is referring to something that's close, these things, and to something that's in the future, further away, those things, those days. That's the way the prophets in the Old Testament referred to the end of, the, end of time, when, when God would come back once and for all to establish his kingdom. That was, that was referred to as those days. Jesus says, ultimately, there's no predicting that day, those days, when, it, when it's going to come. We know for sure he's speaking there about something that's way in the, in the distant future uh, or, or something that's cataclysmic and, and final. But he's also giving specific recommendations. He's talking about signs. So that seems he's also talking about something you can predict, or at least with some, 
certainty. There's two levels going on. That's the point. So let's look closely at each thing. Jesus is answering the question, what does the future hold? And he's answering it on two levels. The first and the bulk of the chapter is given to him explaining to his disciples when the temple is going to be destroyed and how they can know that that's going to happen. He gets at that immediately, uh, in, beginning in verse 5. Interesting thing is Jesus starts there by not, not by giving them signs of when they can expect these things to happen, but by telling them, here's things that have got to happen first that aren't signs of the end. He tells them about things like false Christs coming and leading people astray. He tells them about wars and nations rising against nation. He tells them about natural disasters like earthquakes. And he, he says, these things are going to happen, but the end is not yet. Then he tells them, you're going to be challenged directly as Christians. They're going to haul you before courts. You're going to be beaten and arrested and interrogated. And, and many of you will be killed, specifically as Christians. Those verses, beginning in verse 9, carrying through verse 13, read like a, they, they read like a summary of the book of Acts. We know these things happen to Jesus' followers. To the very followers that he's talking to right now on the side of this mountain, these things happened. These things are but the beginning of the birth pains, verse 8 tells us. So they've asked him about when these things are going to happen. And he's responded, at least at first, about things that are going to happen first, but that don't represent the end. They've asked him when, and the turning place where he does address when is verse 14. In verse 14, he stops with all the not yets, and he says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee. The turning point is this abomination of desolation. This is the point at which the destruction of the temple is going to take place. So what's the sign? What's this abomination of desolation? Let me just answer you as quickly and as simply as I know how. Nobody knows. And if anybody claims to know, they're crazy. At the very least, it's a reference to language in the book of Daniel. Daniel uses this to speak of some sort of atrocity committed against the temple. That, that it's some sort of deeply offensive, defiling act that, that, that comes right before judgment. Most agree that, that first, uh, that what Daniel was referring to directly was something that happened a couple hundred years before Jesus' life. There's a, a big war in Judea called the Maccabean Revolt, and it got started because one of the leaders of that empire put a statue or, or an altar to Zeus right in the middle of the temple, and it was all that they could take. And they revolted and, and they succeeded in setting up another kingdom. That was, that was partly what Daniel was referring to. Jesus is applying the same thing here. That's something to do probably with some sort of offense against the temple. We'll, we'll never know exactly what. But when that happens, Jesus says, a horrible devastation is coming. He tells him to flee because it's severe and it's unmistakable. And it's only incomplete because God shortens it. Otherwise, all would be killed. The description that he launches into in verses 14 through 23, many, if not most, modern New Testament scholars believe corresponds directly to what happened in Jerusalem during a war that occurred 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. Beginning in the year 66 A.D. and stretching on to the year 70, 
there was a brutal, devastating war of Jewish freedom fighters, if you will, against the Roman Empire. There were several different factors that contributed to the start of it. It's almost impossible to recover exactly what got it going. But what's undeniable is that the kinds of things Jesus talks about in verses 14 through 23 happened. They happened during that war. It was common in those days to suppress a rebellion by isolating it. You would, you, would, you would put your forces all around the city, cut off all their supplies so they had no food, no water, and couldn't escape, and you would just starve them out until they gave it up. The city would have been walled, so they couldn't really... It wasn't efficient just to storm the walls. You're going to lose a lot of people that way. But if you just cut them off, then eventually they would turn on each other and they would, they would give it up. That's exactly what happened. The most uh, prolific historian of that war, a guy named Josephus, he estimates that hundreds of thousands of Jews died during those four years. That things were going on, including cannibalism, before the end in Jerusalem. It's the kind of devastation that that Jesus describes so clearly here. And it's the kind of devastation that you could avoid if you took his warning and fled Judea when you saw whatever that sign was take place. That's why most believe that verses 14 through 23 are speaking not of something that's to come, but of something that's already happened. Something that came true. It was the end of their world as it was known then. And there would be no restored Jewish state in Palestine until after World War II. From the year A.D. 70, when when Rome conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and scattered its people throughout the Roman Empire, there was no more Jewish state until the 1940s. It was the end of their world as they knew it. I believe Jesus' words came true, and it's a powerful reason to trust him now. So what does the future hold? Jesus' answer to his disciples is it holds within this generation, he says in verse 30. It holds some serious suffering and devastation. Well, that's not the complete picture. He answers their question on another level as well. The future also holds the return of the king. There's two sections in Mark chapter 13 that don't seem to be possibly fulfilled in the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem. In verse 24 through 27, Jesus describes a time when the Son of Man returns. He describes all of these events that that seem cosmological, like stars falling from heaven, the sun Stopping to, stop, ceasing to give light. The, the moon no longer reflecting the light of the sun. And in the clouds somehow, the Son of Man coming back in power. These, is, these are almost direct quotes out of things in the Old Testament prophets. There's no need necessarily to take them as literal. That, that the stars are literally going to fall down or the sun is literally going to disappear. It, it, there's no way to take them that way, one way or the other. The point is that Jesus comes back. That he comes back this time not as a suffering Savior who's going to die on a cross, but as, as the Son of Man who rules over a kingdom he promised he was coming to found. A kingdom that he rules over in power and glory that's undeniable. What's happening is that when that Son of Man comes, he, like a great magnet, attracts all of his children, wherever they may be, from the four corners of the earth, to himself in security to dwell under his reign. That's what's going to happen. The return of the king is what the future holds. It's that return of the king 
Jesus returns to this subject in verse 32 that, that no one knows when it might happen. That's why he sets up this parable almost about a, a master who leaves and has promised he's going to return, but nobody knows when, and we've got to stay ready because of that. In verse 24 through 27, and in verses 32 through 37, it seems Jesus has switched from talking about the immediate future to talking about the end-of-the-world future. Perhaps the disciples assume that the destruction of the temple and the end of the world were one and the same. Jesus corrects them here. He warns them that they are going to suffer in ways that they could not have imagined before this. But in the middle of his prediction of their suffering, he gives them a vision of his coming that makes that suffering pale in comparison. The grounds of their confidence in suffering these unprecedented trials is knowing that Jesus predicted it beforehand, and he also predicted the fact that he was coming back to vindicate their faith. No one knows when, but when is less important than that he is coming back. That's what the future holds, according to Mark chapter 13. So the question, I think the real burning question that all of us should be asking, is if, if that's what the future holds, how are we supposed to live now? What does knowing that that's where it all ends how does knowing that that's where it all ends shape us now in the present? Jesus doesn't give us info on the future to satisfy our intellectual curiosity. He gives us this information to motivate action. If you scan through Mark 13, you see one imperative, one command after another. He is constantly telling them, be on guard, watch out, don't be deceived, flee. He tells them, stay awake. Jesus is about motivating action. The question for us is, if we, realizing that the bulk of this passage is about things that have already happened, that, that much of it doesn't have a direct connection to us, we have to ask, why in the providence of God would it be here, given that the vast majority of all people who have ever read Mark have read it after these, most of these events took place? It's still here in this text because there is plenty here to tell us about our future and about how we're supposed to live. I, I think the passage is here to call us to trust in Jesus and to call us to stay ready for his coming. It's here to call us to trust in Jesus and to stay ready for his coming. Let me say more about what I mean on each of those. Trust in Jesus. Unfortunately, I think one of the byproducts of our being fascinated with the end of the world with this, all this end-time stuff, is fear. It fosters a fear of the unknown, a fear of what might happen to us. No matter where you come down on whether there's this literal period of intense persecution called the tribulation, Jesus did promise over and over again. Already in Mark, we've seen him promise over and over again that you will suffer, that the call to take up the cross is a call to self-denial. That's what following Jesus looks like. And the truth that's laced throughout Mark chapter 13 is that the unknown future, including any unknown patterns and scale of suffering that we might experience, that that unknown future, and no matter how great the suffering, it pales in comparison to what is known. What is known is that in Jesus we're secure and we are beyond the reach of anything that could come our way. The text speaks to this over and over again. It speaks to the preserving power of Jesus over those who love him. 
again and again, even in talking about these events that were fulfilled soon after Jesus left the earth, he tells him, yes, suffering is coming, but don't worry about what you're going to say. The Spirit will be there. He will take care of you. They're told that, yes, suffering is coming, but God is in control of it. And He is in control of the timing and the extent of it. And He, for the sake of His elect, will cut it short. They're told that no matter how much they might have to suffer, ultimately the Son of Man comes back in power and glory. And that's the only fact that really matters. We should trust Jesus because He wins. Christianity has never been a promise of abundance comfort in this life. But its call to suffering and to self-denial is a call that's rooted in a deeper and much more pervasive hope. In the hope that Jesus is alive now, that the grave couldn't hold him, and that therefore he also has the power to come back and to claim his own. When all is said and done, the one who came bringing the kingdom, but not in the way that you'd expect, will be finally recognized by all for who he really is. And nothing we may be forced to experience now compares with the glory that our Savior King will draw us into when He comes. I think that that's a truth that holds true in spite of fear about the end times, but also it's in the light of fears that we have about anything that we might experience. There's there's few of us. Think about this. There's few of us who could ever experience anything worse than what these disciples faced that that He's talking to here. All that stuff, that litany of things that Jesus says are going to happen to them, they happened. We can read about it in Acts and in other histories of the church. But in the middle of that, in the middle of Jesus' realistic prediction about what they can expect to suffer, he gives them an image of his coming, of the fact that nobody can stop it, that nobody can deny it, and the fact that when he comes, he'll bring all of his people to himself. I love the image of Jesus, the Son of Man, coming back into the world, and all of his people being gathered from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. It's like he's some sort of magnet that's irresistible, a force that nothing can thwart, that draws us into the security of his presence where we will rest secure forever. That's the one all-consuming future fact that should shape how we respond to anything we might fear in this life. There's an underside to that promise, too. There's, a, there's an underside to this promise of security and the ultimate victory of Jesus. So you should trust him because you want to share in that victory when he comes. But you should also trust him now because you don't want to be one who is forced to recognize him as Lord and as King then when it's too late. Ultimately, the image of verses 24 through 27 is of an undeniable universally recognized reign of Jesus over the world. That's going to include all of us. The beauty of the gospel is the promise that we can go ahead and enjoy a foretaste of that rest now. We can begin to submit to him now rather than submitting under duress at the end of time. But there's the promise, too, that if we don't, as Philippians 2 says, every knee is going to bow before Jesus and recognize him as Lord On the earth, under the earth, every knee. The call for us is to trust in him now because he's our only solution for peace with God. And the absence of peace with God is to be judged by the one who's returning in power. So trust in Jesus. That's what we're to do now in light of what's coming in the future. 
I think the other thing that this text specifically calls us to is a readiness. We're called to, to stay ready. The fact of his coming, the fact that he's going to be recognized as king by everybody, either in faith or through judgment, shapes this other facet of our responsibility too. He could come anytime. Staying ready doesn't mean reading the times. Let me, let me say that again make sure you get that. Staying ready, as Jesus calls for here in verses 32 through 37, does not mean trying to read the times to predict when he might come back. Jesus tells us as clearly as he possibly could in verse 32 that he doesn't even know when he's coming back. It's not our responsibility to predict what Jesus himself didn't know. What's the point of trying to figure out something he says no one will know? All that matters, our only responsibility is to live as if he was coming back today. Staying ready means staying faithful as those who've been entrusted with responsibility by a master who could come at any time. That's why I love the example that he uses. I think it's so clear of this guy who leaves on a trip and puts his servants in charge of the house and gives them specific responsibilities and doesn't tell them when he's coming back. And the only thing that matters for them is that they keep doing those responsibilities, fulfilling them to the extent that if he was to show up on a dime, they would be found faithful. The danger is that this master might return and find his servants negligent or asleep or even worse, find them serving other masters. That's the greatest challenge, I think. While, while Jesus isn't here, while he's not here in front of us, while, while he isn't vivid before our eyes, we lose the sense of his reality and we lose the urgency of submission to him. We're called to submit to him now as if he was here with us. But without him, without his actual physical presence in front of us, other things become more attractive to us. We begin to serve other masters. We serve our careers. We serve financial security. We serve our reputations, our relationships. We serve our pleasure, our sense of security. We're, we're a young congregation, so we're especially susceptible, I think, to a lack of urgency. We, we kind of sense that we've got plenty of time to get it figured out. If, if, if we're not secure with Jesus now, it's okay because we've got time. Our death isn't anytime soon. But he's a master that could return at any time. So given that reality, our responsibility is not to fixate on the timing or on signs, but to bow to him as master and to call others to do the same. I think one of my favorite examples of Jesus showing us what this looks like in practice is in Acts chapter 1. It's a very similar setup. The same exact people that he has just described this future to in Mark chapter 13 were with him also right before he left earth. After his death and his resurrection, he gathered all of his followers together just before his ascension into heaven. And they asked him, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time? His response to them reads almost exactly like his words here in Mark 13. He tells them in Acts chapter 1, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has already fixed by his authority. Don't ask if this is the time. Ask only what's your responsibility. He throws them back on what's theirs to know and to do. They're here on this earth, he tells them, in this time and in this place, just as we're here on this earth in our time and our place for one primary responsibility. He tells them, Acts 1, verse 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Our responsibility is to show through our lifestyle and through our words, through the quality of our community, what Jesus is like to make him vivid as a master that's to be served now before it's too late. As we look to the future and to the fact that he will return, that is the only thing that matters. He's coming back one way or the other. He can return at any time. That's the Christian take on the future. That's the bottom line, and it tells us all we need to know about our perspective on life and our responsibility. We've got to trust him now, and we've got to live with the urgency from knowing that this could be the day. Lord, help us. Our minds are weak and are so easily distracted by things that seem more real than the promise that you're coming. So many other masters offer us fulfillment that we can't get from you. And so often we're tempted to follow them. So what we ask, Lord, is that your grace would work in us to make us ready, that we would look to your, your future coming with joy and expectation that, that comes from having no fear, that comes from absolute security and the power of your grace. We pray, Lord, that you would come quickly and that you would find us ready. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.